You know, sometimes you, um, I should add one more announcement. We maybe forget the most important. We are actually going to be here next Sunday celebrating the resurrection together. So come back also for Easter worship next Sunday morning, same time and place. And uh, we look forward to, to being able to rejoice with you. Well, once again, welcome if you're new here. My name is Derek. I'm the pastor. Um, Also, I've been gone for the last couple of weeks. It's really fun to be back. It's great to see all of your faces. Uh, Really, over the time that Joy and I were were gone out of the country, we really were reminded um, of how special of a place this church is and how much we feel loved by you. And um, we've been very thankful for you over the last couple of weeks. So I just wanted you to know that. We're going to look at um, a traditional text, Palm Sunday text. It's Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, into the city of kings, and it is the place, of course, where he will be celebrated and then he will be killed. Will you follow along with me in the Gospel of Mark? We're in chapter 11, starting in verse 1. If you've got a Bible, you can open it there or you can follow along on the screen above. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and to Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and he will send it back here immediately. And they went away, and they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and then he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. He returned to Jerusalem and went to the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the 12. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful for your word this morning. We ask that you, King Jesus, would change our hearts as we read, as we meditate, as we listen. Open our ears and soften our hearts that we might come to know you more fully. And knowing you, we might come to love you and follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you know we, um, we just returned from London, England had a fantastic trip. My brother was married in London. Uh, One of the fun highlights was we got to actually go to church and worship uh, with a congregation a lot really kind of like this, about our size, a very similar building, except that that building is actually a 200-year-old church um, and not a gym. No, it was fantastic. It was actually really wonderful (laughs) to be able to worship in a church and to hear the historic good news of the gospel, even in a historic building. The pastor there had actually been preaching through Mark, so it was fun even to hear the words of Mark. One of my other kind of highlights was that uh, I actually was able to get a haircut and a shave. I don't know if anybody's ever gotten a shave before. This was my first time I'd ever been shaved by someone else. 
and I got this shave at a place called Truefitton Hill, which is the oldest continuously operating barber shop in the world. And as I sat there and listened to my barber, who, by the way, shared the same birthday with me, which was kind of fun, uh, tell me about the history of the place. He started and he said, now, I want you to look up here. And he pointed to some pictures on the wall and he said, that guy right there, that's, that's Queen Elizabeth's father and that's her grandfather and that's her great-grandfather and they've, they've all been clients of ours. In fact, if you go and you go to, to Windsor Castle and you see where most of the monarchs, you know, have been buried, he said, all, all those people have been clients of ours as well. And it was really fun, obviously, to like be able to share in that history, but it was also neat to see this guy take so much pride in having served the kings. It was something that they were so proud of, something that they rejoiced in, something that really even came through in his work to be able to serve the king. It's, of course, what Christians are called to, isn't it? To serve King Jesus. So what does it look like for us to live our lives in service to the king. Well, before we really get to that answer, we really need to dig in a little bit more to who this king is. Who is the king that we're called to serve? And we see this really wonderfully in this passage on Palm Sunday. And we're gonna look at three things about Jesus today. We're gonna look at the king who saves, the king who rules, and the king who gives. So three things about Jesus, the king who saves, the king who rules, and the king who gives. First of all, Jesus, the king who saves. You, you heard it in, in the passage that I read to you. Uh, the, the people, the children, the folks who were gathered around, laying their cloaks on the ground and branches on the ground and saying, Hosanna. Hosanna, blessed is he who call, comes in the name of the Lord. Now that is a word that is probably in church circles you may hear in times like Palm Sunday and on times like Easter, and you just think, okay, Hosanna, that's just kind of this church word, right? And in a lot of ways, actually during Jesus' time, it had become kind of a church word. It had become a word that really was just an exclamation of praise, praise, almost like we would say praise God or hallelujah or hooray, even in a secular context. But the roots of the word Hosanna actually mean something a little different. It has Aramaic word, word, uh, roots, and that word in Aramaic really means something more specific. It means, O oh Lord, save. Save us. May the King or may the Lord or may God actually do His work of saving us. That's what Hosanna means. It is an exclamation that is also a request. Save us because we need saving. We landed on Monday in, in Austin, and, you know, once we we're on the ground, I turned my phone off of airplane mode and entered on Monday to my phone having blown up with texts about what had happened in Nashville. It was a hard reentry because what happened on Monday morning is that um, a young woman walked in with at least three guns into a school and killed six people. Now, this is, um, this I think is the 37th school shooting in America this year, in 2023. Y'all, it's March, and there have already been that many school shootings. This one, for a few reasons, hit closer to home for me and I think for many of us. Uh, 
that school is attached to a church. That church is a PCA church, our denomination. The pastor of that church, Chad Scruggs, is a friend of mine. We served together in RUF. I was an RUF campus minister at the University of Texas when he was the RUF campus minister at SMU. And his daughter, Hallie, was one of those murdered. That school is actually the school where Larry and Karen Shudak's daughter, Cassie, teaches. She was not there in the morning, fortunately. She teaches in the afternoons. That church is where Owen Stroud was a member before he moved to New Braunfels. We have a lot of connections. Another one of my friends, a person that I talk to fairly frequently, is a pastor on staff there. He's worshipped with us before. The tragedy has hit pretty close. The truth is, though, these tragedies should also always hit pretty close. Because what they actually reveal is that there's something wrong in this world. There's something wrong in this world and there's something wrong with our hearts. The, the human heart <laughs> that thinks it's a good idea to walk into a public place and kill children is a broken heart. Jesus actually even says that the same seed that causes that murder lives in all of our hearts, the same seed that actually produces us to, to say hateful things to other people. We were in London to celebrate my brother's wedding. It was a fantastic event. But I have another brother, and he wasn't there because my two brothers are in the middle of conflict right now. We live in a broken world, a world that needs saving. Friends, there really is only one response when you see news like that, when you hear of those things, when you experience them is to say, Lord, save us. Lord Jesus, King Jesus, come and change things. Come and save us because we need saving badly. Hosanna is a cry for mercy, for God to do what God does to come and save us out of our brokenness. That's the king who saves it's the king that we need to cry out to. Secondly, though, Jesus is also the king who rules. This is probably one of the places that's a little harder for us, is because when we celebrate a king, we celebrate a kingdom even that we're a part of, well, that means actually that that kingdom that we're a part of has rules to it. It has a politic. Now, let me describe what that word means. It may be a surprise that I say that, that Christians actually have politics. Politics is really, in essence, just the way that people who are living together figure out how they're going to live. They're the rules that really govern a society. How are we going to spend our money and deal with economics? How are we going to deal with justice? How are we going to deal with uh, the way that people relate to one another? How are we going to deal with how human beings should thrive or not? How are we going to actually do all that together? And countries and societies have gathered and they have developed particular political systems that help figure that out. But being a part of God's kingdom actually brings with it also a politic the politics of our kingdom. We have a way in which we live with one another. 
We have a way in which we, that governs the way that we relate to each other, that changes the way that we deal with economics and justice and neighbors and all of those things. To belong to the kingdom of God means that we have actually a politic that supersedes all other political commitments. In one of our times in, in, in England, just a, this was kind of a throwaway time it felt like, um, is that we went to the post office, right, like people do. I had something I needed to mail. I went to the post office, and um, of course, you know, the post office is in this awesome little alley that you got to go find. I mean, it looks like you were, we were looking for a wizard wand, you know, in this alley. It was amazing, you know. And you get in the post office, though, but, you know, after you get through the wizard wand kind of feeling, you get to a post office, and it feels like a post office, and everybody's standing in line, waiting to be served, and the people who are doing the serving are kind of acting like most people in a post office do. They're a little annoyed. The people standing in line are a little annoyed. Everybody just kind of wants to get through with it because, hey, we're just here to do something really boring, like send things through the mail. Well, we finally got up there, and I'm mailing my thing, and it was kind of big, and so we're talking about how to, to mail it and send it, and the person that was helping us was you know, I mean, she was just kind of monotone and just kind of going about her day and just kind of doing the thing the way that you would expect a postal worker to be. And in the middle of all of this, Joy looked at her and she said, I really like your glasses. And it was amazing. Like that, her attitude changed. Like that, she became, her, her countenance just changed. Her eyes widened. Her, her lips started to, to turn up a little bit in a smile. She became immediately more in tuned to us and our needs. In fact, the Bozars had very kindly given us <laughs> literally a big wad of cash, a bunch of English pounds to use while we were there. And when we got there and we were kind of showing her all this cash, she said, you know, actually that cash is out of date. They've changed it and it's no longer legal tender. But, but, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take that. I'm going to exchange it for you. And she actually exchanged our old cash for new usable money. What was amazing, actually, about all of that was the change, the response. She had responded to the kindness shown to her, and actually her world and the way that she, in, uh, that she engaged her world changed. Friends, that is actually a political kind of move, and it's the same thing that we're called to as Christians. We respond to what Jesus has done for us by changing now the way that we engage the world around us. We lean into the world, and we, we take the input, and it comes through a different filter now. It comes through a different filter that elevates the desires and the values of the kingdom of God over our own or maybe even over the desires and the values of our secular political parties. And we just start to bring in that information, and as it comes through that filter, that politic, the politics of the kingdom of God, it changes the way that we lean into everything. The way that we think about tragedies, the way that we think about our money, the way that we think about our neighbors, the way that we think about people who are different than we are, we respond to that king by following that king. Here's the third thing. Not only the king who saves and the king who rules, but also the king who gives. 
You could think of Palm Sunday in a lot of ways as Jesus' kind of inauguration week. He's coming in to the city of kings to take the throne of the king, right? And in America, we have inaugurations of presidents. Some of them are really great, some of them not so great. William Henry Harrison very famously uh, spoke for almost two hours in his inaugural address. By the way, to, to people who are all gathered around who probably couldn't hear even a word of it because PAs were not yet invented. So they all stood there, and they stood there in the freezing cold. It was cold and windy, and he spoke for two hours, and he did it without a jacket or a hat. And then about a month or two later, he died. Most people think of pneumonia. Not the greatest inaugural week. George W. Bush, after inauguration, came into his first week in, in, uh, in office, and actually staffers from uh, the Bill Clinton presidency had kind of played some tricks on them. They had glued all of the drawers shut in the desk. They had rewired many of the phones so that when he tried to pick up the phone to call somebody else in the, Oval, or in the White House, it went to a totally different place. And they had removed all of the W's from the keyboards and all the computers. He had a bit of a hard week. Jesus' inaugural week um, does not go all that well. He is proclaimed as king. Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the one who comes in our father David, right? This is the king, the Messiah, the long-awaited one, the one who is coming in uh, to fill the throne of David, who will actually make all things right. Hosanna. Blessed is he. Let's throw our cloaks and our branches on the ground to see the king come in. That's what the crowds cry on Palm Sunday. But a few days later, they would cry, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. Jesus' inaugural week does not go well. But it goes exactly as he has planned it to go. That Psalm 118 that we have um, repeated a few times already in our service uh, has, has, has one particular even phrase that we have repeated a few times already. This idea that the, the cornerstone, that the, that the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, again, Psalm 118 is one that God's people probably would have sung or recited as they were walking into Passover. Passover is what's happening right now in the Bible. As Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, he's coming in as king, but he's also coming in with a lot of other people to celebrate the Passover, the yearly feast that they would all come to Jerusalem to celebrate, remembering God's mercy and his salvation. And as God's people in the Old Testament would be coming into Jerusalem and they'd be saying, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, they're probably talking about Israel itself. Because the general thinking would be, this little country, who needs it? Right in the, in the global scheme of things, we've already kind of, you know, conquered this place. There's bigger countries. There's bigger empires. Who needs this little Israel, right? It's the stone that's been rejected. But God's people knew that God's promises would be fulfilled, and they were able to say in hope, that stone that's been rejected is going to become the cornerstone, that God is actually going to work through Israel to make all things right, to renew the world. It's going to be the foundation stone for the world's history. But Jesus takes this phrase and he does something amazing with it. 
If you actually look forward in Mark and you get to chapter 12, the next chapter, you see Jesus in the temple. He's talking to the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, and he tells them this parable. He says, okay, think about this. A wealthy landowner has some land, and he leases it out to some tenants, and the tenants destroy the land. They're bad tenants. And so the landowner sends one of his servants to go and try to confront the tenants, and when his servant gets there, they kill him. So the landowner thinks, wow, I don't know what to do there. I'll send somebody else, I guess. And he sends another one of his servants. And he gets there, and those well, the wicked tenants kill that servant too. So finally, the landowner thinks this. He says, you know, I'll send my son. Surely they'll pay attention to him. Surely they'll honor my son. Surely if I send my son to them, all of this wicked business will stop. And he sends his son, and these wicked tenants kill his son as well. And then Jesus looks at the scribes and the Pharisees, and he quotes from Psalm 118. He says, the stone that was rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And this is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. He's hinting at something different. That the sun is actually rejected and will become the cornerstone. Later, in Acts chapter 4... Peter and John stand before the council, and they're telling them uh, why they've been called in front of the Jewish council, the the ruling party of of the Jews at the time, to say, why have you been preaching all of this crazy business about Jesus? And here's what they say. They tell the story of what Jesus has done, and then they quote Psalm 118. They say, the stone that was rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And guess who that cornerstone is? And they make it really explicit. It's Jesus. Jesus, he hints that it's of himself, and then in Acts 4, we see really explicitly that Jesus is this cornerstone that was rejected that has become the cornerstone, the foundation stone through which God will actually renew all things. And guess what happens between Mark 12 and Acts 4? Jesus is crucified, he dies, and he's raised to new life. The in-between point between Mark 12 and Acts 4 and the way that God actually will take that rejected stone and make him the cornerstone of all life and all history is through his death. The way that Jesus becomes the corner, the foundation of all things, of our faith and of the history of our world is that he gives himself. Friends, the answer to bloodshed, the answer to the bloodshed of innocent children is the shed blood of Jesus who gave himself for us. The answer to the difficulties of this world is the shed blood of Jesus who gave himself for us. The answer even To how does somebody who has seeds of those own things living in his own heart, how does that kind of person actually adapt to the righteous rules and requirements, the politics of the kingdom of God? How in the world does that work? The answer is the shed blood of the King, Jesus Christ. Friends, if you haven't heard this really clearly before, just listen up. If you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. You will not make your life right, and the world cannot be made right by your own actions. It just can't happen. You need someone else to do it for you. 
And Jesus, the only righteous king, the king who would come in to rule, has laid his life down that we might have life. That's the gospel, the good news. It's what we celebrate on Easter. It's what we celebrate today. It's what we celebrate every day that Jesus has given himself for us. So how do we respond? We asked this in the beginning. What does it look like? What does it mean to love the king and to want to serve the king? Well, we get a little picture, actually, of that, of at least the opposite of it, right here after Jesus comes in. Psalm 118, when it was spoken by God's people, was supposed to actually end in the temple. That's the place they would gather and celebrate. It ends in the temple. It ends with rejoicing in God's goodness. And Jesus, upon entering Jerusalem, that's where he ends as well. He comes into Jerusalem and he comes into the temple. But it's not a party upon his, uh, on his arrival. It's not a celebration of the king is here. He's in the temple. Yay. No, the priests who are gathered around actually decide, and this is what Mark says, is that they plot a way to destroy him. They plot a way that they want to destroy him. Because here's the truth, is that kingdom politics have come up against their own politics of power. And they have decided to lift themselves up and destroy Jesus. What does it look like for us to serve the king? It looks like just the opposite, doesn't it? That we might die to ourselves so that we might see Jesus lifted up. That we might cry, Lord, save. That would have been the appropriate thing for the priest to say to Jesus as he came into the temple. Hosanna, Lord, king, the one who comes in the line of Davis, save us because we need saving. It's the appropriate thing for us to say. Lord, save, and Lord, who has laid his life down for us. Let us know that and live out of it so that we might respond to it in all things. Let's pray that the Lord enable us to do that even now. King Jesus, who has come to save us, who has come to rule us in justice and righteousness, Lord, and who has come to do that in the craziest way, to lay your life down for us so that we might have life. Lord, let us celebrate that good news and let us respond to it in all things so that when we come into face-to-face -face with tragedy, it is you we cry out to. When we come face-to-face -face even with the way that you have desired us to, to act in a countercultural way, that, Lord, we might lay our own desires down so that we might take up our cross and follow you. And, Lord, when we come to ask the question, how, how will we even be identified? How will we know who we are? How will we have a feeling of security and safety and identity in this world, Lord, that the only thing that we would cling to is your death for us and your resurrection on our behalf. Lord, come quickly to save us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.